back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And today Annie is being a blessing and she is covering this case because the good old Rona is still getting me down. It's getting me down a little bit. Yeah. How are you feeling? I know it's been a quite a rough week for you. Yeah, I thought I was doing quite a bit better yesterday, but it's just weird how this virus truly just wipes all the energy from you. I woke up, I was feeling pretty good. My coffee was tasting like 60% back to normal. I was feeling myself, started doing laundry, cleaning, and I did a little too much. Ended up not feeling so hot. So I set myself back a couple steps. But I do have to tell you, I have been watching something and I don't even know if I told you much about it yet. But if you guys have Apple Plus, the streaming service, I think it's like $4.99 a month if you don't. Sign up for the free week because I tell you what, this is not sponsored by Apple, but hey, hit us up if you ever want to. (laughs) I'm obsessed because with us doing research for cases and just consuming a lot of true crime podcasts and documentaries myself, it's so hard for me to find something that I haven't seen or heard of the case before. I did not know anything going into this besides my friend who's a gem of a human knew I was getting a little lonely here in quarantine. So he offered to virtually watch a show with me. And I picked this one because quite frankly, the lead character was uh, hot. Real, real, real hot, actually. But I was so invested in this. And then to find out that this is actually based on a true story I cannot wait to finish the series. I've been holding back from Googling, but I highly recommend, Annie, that you watch it. In fact, we talked on our Instagram about maybe doing some live watching of true crime documentaries, and I would re-watch this again because it is so stinking good. And what's it about? Can you give us like a little Glace and Cliff notes? Well, I'm not going to give any spoilers. Um, The context of it is a guy goes to jail for a 10-year sentence for a nonviolent crime. He's selling coke. You almost think of him as like this Wolf of Wall Street sort of guy. But once he's in prison, he gets an offer to basically buddy up at a different facility with a guy that is suspected of being a serial sexual assault perpetrator and a murderer. And he confessed to the crimes. But he keeps recanting his confessions. And because they don't believe him to be of sound mind, they're trying to get the confessions thrown out, which would mean he would be back on the streets. So this guy has to go buddy up to him. And it's such an interesting mind games because this guy has to try to find ways to empathize with this man that's done all these deplorable things, or at least is suspected of doing deplorable things. So it is really, really good. The acting is phenomenal. And not all the episodes are out yet, so I don't even know how it ends. The fact that I have not Googled this is huge because I'm one of those people that reads the last page of a book first because if I like the ending, then I'll probably like the book. But I'm doing my best. We are actually going to be launching a Patreon soon to help support this podcast and the research and hours it goes into producing it. So maybe we should make that our first live streaming, hanging out with our scary squad watching this. That's my thought, because I would rewatch this again for sure. What's the show called? Just one more time. It's called Blackbird. I'll try not to watch it before a watch party, but that was a great pitch. (laughs) It's so good. It is seriously so good. I was so nervous watching it because you got the like butterflies of like, oh my gosh, did he do it? Did he not do it? And the actor is so stinking good. I could go on about this the whole episode, but I won't. I promise. It's so good. You guys, I, that's my vote. You can let us know on Instagram what your vote is for the first time we do a live watch party or a recap. Let us know. But 
I am clearly a huge supporter of rewatching this. And clearly a, a huge supporter of this show. <laughs> yeah. And the main actor. Someone look up his name. He is cute. I love it. Well, that was good. You look gorgeous right now with your gold under eye patches, that big top bun you have. You're rocking it. You look way better than I would look battling COVID. So we are glad you're joining us. I know our listeners are, and I definitely am because there's no way I could do this without you. I have a good episode for you today. So grab your tea. But before we get into that, let's do a quick recap of the week. Please do, because I have been clearly watching a lot of TV, but not a whole lot of news. So you can catch <laughs> me up. In June of 2021, 29-year-old Sonia Khan moved to Chicago to get away from her ex-husband, Rahil Ahmed. She started a TikTok account, which is GeminiGirl underscore 099, and began using her platform and voice as an outlet to talk about her divorce and her healing journey. The goal of her TikTok was to help share her story and also talk about how she was treated from friends and family after divorcing Rahil. She was on a mission to end the stigma especially when it comes to cultural beliefs around divorce and how a woman was put on this planet to honor their husband. Recently, she started getting a lot of views and going pretty viral. Her ex-husband, Rahil, left his house in Georgia and traveled to Chicago and shot her. He then turned the gun on himself. She was pronounced dead at the scene, but he was transmitted to Northwestern Hospital, where he was later pronounced dead. Police found a weapon at the scene, and they are saying this is a murder-suicide. One thing that's really impactful that Sonia said on her TikTok, she said the following, going through a divorce as a South Asian woman feels like you failed at life. The way the community labels you, the lack of emotional support you receive, and the pressure to stay with someone because what will people say is isolating. It makes it harder for women to leave marriages that they shouldn't have been in to begin with. As I said, I have not been following the news recently, so I didn't know about this case. But it just brings up the fact that her videos are going viral. There's a lot of people that are going through similar circumstances as she was. And like I said, I don't know this case, so I don't want to assume that why she was in this relationship that there was abuse going on. But clearly how it ended, it was it was not a healthy relationship. So I want to encourage anyone that's listening there and find themselves in a similar situation to go to the hotline.org. It is an amazing, amazing resource. It's just really great for developing a safety plan for helping you leave and when to leave and getting counseling and resources. Um, they even go so far as when you first log on to it, it asks, do you think that your computer or your phone is being tracked? If so, here's how to get on this website without them knowing. So it's just a really wonderful resource that I try to talk about as much as possible. So again, that is the hotline.org. If you are in an abusive or just very controlling relationship, it's a really great resource. And we'll definitely add that to the show notes just in case. I love that, Elise. Let's go over to Iowa, where Cedar Falls residents Tyler Schmidt and Sarah Schmidt, both 42 years old, and their six-year-old daughter, Luna, were identified as the three victims whose bodies were found Friday morning at a campsite. Their nine-year-old son, Arlo, survived the attack, and he is safe. They also discovered a fourth person's body who died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, and authorities are investigating what the motive here could have been. They cannot find a single connection between the shooter and the victims, and it's such a sad story. We'll keep everyone updated, but I will say that a GoFundMe has been set up as a trust fund for Arlo, so we're also going to add that link in our show notes. And if you have a dollar or two to spare just to help this little boy have some financial stability for the rest of his life, I know that we'll be donating and we would love it if our Scary Squad also rallied behind Arlo. Do you know if Arlo was injured in the attack as well? 
I don't think he was. It just that he survived the attack and he's safe. They're being pretty vague about it, I think, because he's right. a minor, which is even more sad that he has to go without his family. That is so bizarre that they can't figure out a connection between this man and the family. The next story is just as awful. There is a woman being held on a $1 million bond in California after disguising herself as a nurse with the intention to steal a baby from the maternity ward. The suspect is 23-year-old Jessia Marin, and she posed as a newly hired nurse, which allowed her to gain access to the medical unit where all of the newborn babies were being looked after. Thankfully, the hospital staff took notice and confronted her, then they quickly notified security of the breach and this alleged attempted kidnapping. This investigation is also ongoing, but how wild is that? It's, it's it's disgusting, and I don't have a better word for it because my brain right now is a little bit mushy. But to think of what could have happened is just terrifying, so I'm glad they caught it in time. I love that we have this podcast, but it's taken that veil of naivety away from us a little mm-hmm. bit, I think. Um, and it's just, it's wild what is constantly going on in the world. But we hope to use this podcast not only to talk about these cases that are hard for even us to stomach sometimes as we research them, but to use them as a jumping off point and a catalyst to have conversations around mental health. My sister shared her story and we hope to have interviews with other victims and their families going forward, but also just to talk about social injustices and issues along the way. This world can be pretty dark, but we're here to hopefully put a spin on some of the darkness. That is a good point. And for our last story, this is actually a story that Elise texted me this morning. John Benet's father and half-brother are petitioning the Colorado governor, who's named Jared Polis, to hand over the DNA samples the Boulder Police Department has collected and allow a company called Parabon Nano Labs to do DNA testing in this case. You talked about them. Yes, I talked about them in the mini episode about cases solved by DNA. Um, But this John Binet little update, I really hope that they get those DNA samples and that they can test them via Parabon Nanolabs. I feel like, Annie, we're assuming that all of our listeners are of the same age bracket as us and know this case probably from the time. I I don't even know how old I was. When did this happen? We got to look at the year. I'm going to look at the year right now. Yeah, this is the infamous case of the little girl found dead in Boulder, Colorado. She was a beauty queen. She was this gorgeous little blonde hair girl, and they have never been able to identify who murdered her. There's been some suspected people of interest, but this was years ago, maybe back in the 90s. Yeah, it was 96. I remember watching all the specials on this case. If you are of the same age bracket or older than I am, which in a week I'll be 35, you know this case because it was all over the news. I feel like the only thing on the news because she was found Christmas morning, which I think added an even more haunting part to the tale. But she was such a beautiful little girl. I think the police kind of suspected her family right away. There's a lot of whodunits in this. But when I read that article, there's 25 items that could have DNA that just have not been tested. And you'd think with the media coverage this case got that, and I know her family was quite well off, that Mm -hmm. even if they do it independently, like, what's the holdup? Let them run the DNA. Yeah. And this scientist from the Parabon Nano Labs said it would take her just a few hours to identify the DNA collected from the crime scene. So she's ready to go. She's like, give me that DNA. I'll make a family tree. I'll work my magic. And hopefully this case can get solved after all these years of speculations and 
you know, loosens. I'm excited for this update. Me too. We'll see what the governor says, because, again, I think it's at the point where the governor has to decide. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I think that's why they're going right to him and really petitioning for him to release it. I hope that we get some answers because that has been a whodunit mystery. Sometimes I think it's one person, then I think it's the next, then I listen to a different coverage of it, and it is just, it is a wild case. And maybe once we get some closure, then I can finally cover it because as I have told you before, I'm not big on covering cold cases because they keep me up at night. The case I'm covering today feels like a big old game of Clue. It's messy and difficult to follow at times. I had never heard about this case, and I truly just stumbled upon it. I'm very glad that I did, because for today's episode, we are heading out west to Arizona, and I am covering the murder of Gary Triano. Gary was born on November 6, 1943. He grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and very little is known about his early childhood and family. He earned a degree in accounting from the University of Arizona, and after graduating, he continued his education and attended the University of Arizona's law school. He was living a pretty normal life and eventually settled down and married a woman named Mary, and they had two kids together. After a few years of marriage, Gary and Mary divorced. Aside from the divorce, Gary was doing pretty well for himself. He worked as a financial developer and was a really successful businessman. He had a larger-than-life personality and connections with some really powerful people. To say he was rich is an understatement. He was a multimillionaire and had everything going for him. Rough life, Gary. Right. It does get rough for Gary, though. I spoke too soon. (laughs) During this phase in his life, Gary met a woman named Pam Phillips, who was an independent businesswoman, a one-time model, and a realtor who sold commercial real estate in Tucson. Pam was worth around $2 million herself and was completely self-made. It was truly a match made in heaven. Gary and Pam immediately hit it off and had this whirlwind relationship. They quickly became one of Tucson's it couples. On October 4, 1986, the two were married and shortly after had two kids of their own. This is where I hoped the story would end. I so wish that Gary was able to watch his four kids grow up and that he was able to live a long, happy, successful life. But sadly... That does not happen in this case. You know, Annie, I think we just need to realize that any case we cover is probably not going to have a fairy tale happy ending. (laughs) I'm so hopeful, though. I'm like, ah, I really like this family. I like the people. And then one of them's not going to make it. And it just, it's hard. Like, you get so attached to these people. I will say one thing about podcasting is you learn about their life, you learn about their past, and it's heartbreaking. I think the first episode with um, Beth Miller, I actually cried during it. Yeah. And I was like, I never do this during podcasts, but you just, you learn to love them and like, you hear about their life and you hear about things that the media doesn't tell you. And it's so sad. I'm totally with you. We obviously want to look up the victims and tell their story. So when you get that moment of where you can find something that is similar to you or you maybe have the same interest or hobby or whatever, like the, the thing is that connects you to that person, then it is a heaviness because they become more than just the story. They become a human mm-hmm. and a person that this should never have happened to. Exactly. Pam and Gary lived a life of absolute luxury. They were traveling the world, spending months in Europe, and living very comfortably. They hung out with the elite. They were even celebrity pals with Donald and Mara Trump. Gary and Pam even took the Trumps to a University of Arizona basketball game, and they wanted everyone to know that they were besties with a billionaire businessman. Status was really important for Gary's career, 
and he was getting invited to bigger events with more clients who had really deep pockets. What did Gary do? He was a businessman and an investor, and that's part of the mystery where this money was coming from. Got it. One thing the couple was known for was grabbing some friends and hopping on Gary's private jet to Vegas because he loved to gamble. He owned a few casinos in Las Vegas, which only added to his huge wealth and notoriety. This is a picture-perfect life, right? Well, I hate gambling because if I have money, I want it in my pocket. I play the penny slots, and I get excited when I'm $1.20 up. I'm cashing out. I'm done. I play that Wheel of Fortune. That game gets me every time with a little song. But once I've gotten one spin of the fortune wheel, I'm done because I hate losing money. And you know you're going to lose. You're like, I made 20 cents. Yeah. I made 20 cents. I'm out. I'm out. (laughs) And I got a free drink. So really, I'm up like 10 bucks if you look at it that way. True. So I get that this is like the picture perfect life. But how does he only have a few million and have a private jet and you said owns a casino? Yes. I'll get into that in a second. But I'm glad you brought up that point about it seems like it's perfect. But because as we all know, just because a couple appears happy and just because a man seems like he has it all does not mean that's always the case. Yeah, take seven years after getting. Yeah, exactly. You see this picture perfect couple and you're like, oh, I just want to be them. If Instagram was back in the day, I'm sure these two would have been all over it. But after seven years of marriage, Gary's life started to fall apart. He had acquired a ton of debt from certain business deals falling through and this lifestyle and persona that he wanted to upkeep. And it began taking a toll on Pam and the family. The first issue, Elise, that you were talking about, was Gary's gambling. We all know that gambling can be a slippery slope, and oh boy, was it ever for Gary. He often traveled to Las Vegas and even helped with some of the plans for the casinos on the Strip. He worked hard, and he played hard. And after only a few years, Gary was pushed out of these casinos, and his personal debt skyrocketed. He owed these casinos several millions of dollars, and because he was no longer a partner, they all wanted paid. Oh, he was doing a lot more than Wheel of Fortune. A lot more, like millions of dollars worth of gambling. Aside from the casino debts, he also owed $1.8 million to his ex-wife Mary, $91,000 to an attorney, and hundreds of thousands to a group of mob investors who supposedly were involved in criminal activity around the Southwest region. Oh, Gary had some dirty dealings. He did. And I think he just kept taking out money on these loans or borrowing from people. And there's a point where people are like, I need to get paid, buddy. And Gary did not have the money. This was all too much for Pam to handle, and the couple separated in 1993. This was not a clean divorce. Gary and Pam had filed numerous restraining orders against each other, and it got really nasty. The kids were involved in terms of who has custody, Money was involved. Ownership of property was involved. It it was bad. Because you said she came into this marriage with a substantial amount of wealth herself, right? Exactly. She was wealthy herself, around $2 million. He's trying to get her money out to pay his debts during the divorce. That would make, yeah, that'd make me mad if I wasn't aware of all these little business dealings. And now you're wanting to split 50-50 when your debt is more than what I have as my net worth. Yep. After their divorce was finalized, Pam moved to Aspen and started a new chapter with their kids. She began selling real estate in Aspen, which if you've ever been, those houses, even back in the 90s, I mean, insane. This new career helped put her right back in the scene of socialites and wealth in Aspen, Colorado. Gary stayed in Tucson where things continued to get worse. 
On November 1st, 1996, Gary was playing a round of 18 holes like he normally did at the La Paloma Resort Country Club. He finished his round of golf and walked out to his Lincoln Town car to head home. Gary got into the car, and in the passenger side of the car was a blue gym bag that did not belong to him. When Gary opened the bag up, a pipe bomb went off, exploding inside his car and killing Gary. A pipe bomb? A pipe bomb located in his car. I know now. <laughs> um, that was not where I thought this was heading. There was a TV report that said the bomb was so powerful, it literally sent debris flying 500 yards into the air. The windshield actually flew over trees and into the swimming pool area of the La Paloma Country Club. And there was so much energy in that pipe bomb that it caused all of the windows to shatter and the roof completely peeled back. The roof of the car completely peeled back? Yep. That's how much energy was in this little blue duffel bag. Holy buckets. People at the country club began panicking after hearing this incredibly loud boom and seeing this car was now on fire. A witness, who was a cardiologist, ran up to the car and later described what he saw. He said, interestingly enough, the body was actually still intact, but it looked like a war scene. It was very burned, but he was able to make a note that the body was very pale, and he later realized it was because all of the blood had drained out of the body due to the amount of trauma sustained. Like the force of the impact. Ooh, so the body's wow. still there, but like there's... Right. Yeah. Pretty graphic. Law enforcement was called to the scene, and they arrived minutes later. They put out the fire, and there were some questions around what exactly just happened. Like, did the engine blow up? Was there a car malfunction? What could have possibly caused this huge catastrophic event to happen at this very nice country club? Well, when they started to, to dig around the car, pieces of the pipe bomb were quickly discovered, and everyone started to panic. A bomb squad was brought in to make sure there weren't other bombs in the car or around the country club. They were able to identify Gary pretty quickly, because he was a regular and pretty well-known in Tucson. Investigators rushed over to his house to make sure there weren't more bombs. What they saw when they got to the house was not what they were expecting. Any guesses? I don't know. You really got me confused at Pipe Bomb because I'm, now I'm going back and I'm like, okay, angry ex-wife, potential mob ties, but I've never heard of the mob using Pipe Bombs. He's hanging out with the elites, but then again, Pipe Bombs doesn't really fit with that. So, okay, they go to his house. They rush up to the door, they barge in, and they find a crowd of people who were Gary's friends and family inside the house because they had planned a surprise birthday party for him. No. Yep, this incident happened five days before Gary would have turned 23. Oh my God. 23? He was 23? This incident happened only five days before Gary would have turned 53. 53 makes so much more sense. I was like, what? This guy has lived a life. I was like, let me just rephrase that. Skirt, skirt, back it up a second, sister. Okay, but could you even imagine you're standing mm -hmm. in this room and the police, like, doors open. Break with the, the door big, down. You know, whatever that thing is called. And pop the door open. I don't know who would have been more stunned. The people standing there waiting for Gary or the police. Right. And it's so sad because they were all going to celebrate him. And that's how they find out that he died right then on the spot. But then the other round of initial shock was because they all realized, oh, it was a pipe bomb. Are there bombs in the house? Exactly. And everyone had to evacuate. And it was a very chaotic experience. At this point, investigators had decided that it was a direct attack on Gary 
and there was no longer a threat to the country clubs. They cleared the scene over there. They narrowed in on Gary, and they started looking at his life. His attorney, named Ron Lehman, talked a lot about Gary's last moments because Gary had called him twice and left a voicemail. That voicemail said something along the lines of, Call me. I need to talk to you. Something's up. Ron said this was very bizarre because in the seven years that the two knew each other, Gary never called a second time. Ron thinks that Gary knew something was off. He said that he seemed really concerned and just really on edge. Let's talk about this pipe bomb. Investigators were able to determine that it was made up of a 17-inch long pipe that was one and a half inches in diameter and full of explosive powder. What's interesting is that they believe this bomb was activated by a remote-controlled detonator. <gasps> so someone had to be in the area. Someone was watching. Investigators did more digging, and they realized that the person who set off the bomb was most likely in that exact parking lot at the same time. And how they figured this out is because of Gary's injuries. It looked like he had literally turned to the right, picked up bag, opened it, and then the bomb went off. So someone had to be watching him open the bag. And then detonated it. Oh, God. According to one friend by the name of Dr. Lawrence D'Antonio, Gary was associated with known criminals like the infamous mafia boss Joe Bonanno, who, like we know, was an Italian-American crime boss of the Bonanno crime family, which he ran from 1931 to 1968. He was one of the top five crime families in the U.S. Yeah, that's not a small name. No. And during this time, he was one of the top mafia figures of all time. Joe eventually retired in Tucson, which is how they come into connection. Want to guess who financed Gary's first business? Well. Joe Bonanno. All right. Joe Bonanno. So this is getting a little sketchy but i still have never heard of a pipe bomb being used by the mob they are usually ones to make their kills either absolutely secret or very much out in the open to share a message which is exactly what law enforcement thought oh, look at me detective del bomb at your service know, that's impressive they did first think okay this was a mob hit done and done dr d told them that gary was living a really dangerous lifestyle and that he carried a gun at all times. He also said that he has seen proof that Gary was on a kill list. So that was the first initial thought. However, back to that pipe bomb, car bombs were not a thing in Tucson. And this bomb, investigators came to the conclusion that it was not a sophisticated bomb. I don't want to say it was a dumb bomb because of what horrible thing it did, but it was sloppy and it looked like it was the creator's first time making a bomb. So the mob theory was put on the back burner. The more investigators dug into Gary's financial situation, the more alarmed they became. Gary was overdue on his country club dues. He was using a friend's account to get his dry cleaning done. And he went from spending tens of thousands of dollars a month to barely getting by. What's interesting is that in 1993, three years before his death and around the time of that divorce, Gary had filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy claiming $40 million in debt after several failed business dealings regarding those casinos. So back to that old gambling. That's coming back to bite him in the butt. A year before Gary died, his attorney recalled a deposition where a man, who remains anonymous, under oath and in court, was very vocal about how angry with Gary over a business deal that went bad he was. He was angry. I'd be angry about $40 million, too. Court records showed Gary was or had been a defendant in at least 54 civil cases. 
Many of those cases accused him of non-payment to business partners or defaulting on loans. The Arizona Daily Star archives shows lenders and former associates of the deceased businessman had filed cases seeking a total of more than $9 million from Gary. Was this like a Ponzi scheme, like he was taking money from one lender, putting it into somebody else, or is he just screwing over everybody? I think he was so far into this lifestyle that he was panicking, and he had ties with really wealthy people, so he was borrowing money, and then he wasn't able to pay them back. But all of this just goes to show that the long list of people who could have potentially done this was endless. I mean, you have 54 people alone seeking a civil case against him. You have Joe Bonanno. You have the casinos coming for you. It's a lot. Is it possible, because you've said that the bomb was very rudimentary at best, he has all this debt, but he has children. So did they ever suspect that it was him who had set up this big thing to like, you know, I'm going to clear my family of this debt and like at least my kids will be taken care of? I don't think so, because I think he truly believed he could get out of the debt just by continuing to put his numbers together. He was extremely smart. He was charismatic. I think he truly thought he could wiggle his way out of it. But this next little sentence might give some detail around exactly his characteristics and who he was. A childhood friend said the following about Gary. Gary was a very flamboyant man, and he was also very good looking, but he was rotten to the core. He was a con man. He was a thief, and he would rob or steal from anybody, including his own family, his own wife. That's just the way he was. No one deserves this. I think money's just like the, the root of all evil, to be honest. As investigators were combing through all of Gary's finances, they noticed a $2 million life insurance policy that had been taken out on Gary back in 1992, one year before him and Pam divorced. It looked innocent because the beneficiaries were his two kids, but because they were minors, Pam would actually be the one to receive this large chunk of money, and she did just a few months after Gary's death. Investigators need to talk to Pam. They got to check in with her and just make sure that there's no potential tie between her and Gary's murder. But before they can even pack their bags, investigators get a call from the Aspen police who tell investigators that there's something very odd going on with Pam. Ronald Young, or Ron as his friends called him, was under investigation for defrauding people thousands and thousands of dollars. One of those people who was defrauded was Pam, but she refused to press charges, which raised a lot of questions. What's even more interesting is when Pam was interviewed, investigators asked her, who's Ron Young? And she basically minimized his relationship to her. She would say things like, oh, he's just somebody who did some financial work for me. She never talked about the fraud or how he'd stolen from her, and she seemed pretty shaken by any questions that involved Ron. As it turns out, Ron Young had a criminal record. And this was a new, intriguing lead, a link between Pam and a small-time crook. But what do crooks do when they know they're being watched? They flee. And that's exactly what Ron did. Oh, so now they're thinking, but did she hire this guy? Because she's being evasive about their connection. And if someone defrauded me thousands of dollars, I would absolutely go to court and testify. But she was the only one who refused to do it. Which makes you think, like, were you guys lovers? Or, or does he have some kind of blackmail over you? Yeah, because if you're like, oh, you owe me this much money, I'll forgive your debt if you do this thing for me. Ooh, Pamela. Mm -hmm. For nine full years, law enforcement was unable to locate Ron to talk about these fraud charges and embezzlement charges. But what do you do when you want to really find someone? You post their face all over America's Most Wanted, and that's exactly what happened. 
on November 10th, 2005, an episode of America's Most Wanted profiled Ronald Young, who was then wanted for forgery and embezzlement. The episode also mentioned his suspected involvement in Gary's death. A chiropractor who was living in Florida realized that this was one of his clients. He called authorities and told them that Ron was going to be in his office on Monday morning for an adjustment. Turns out that Ron had up and moved to Florida and was using an alias name. Could you imagine being that chiropractor? You're like, dude, I just gave him an adjustment and he is a potential murderer. Oh, that'd be such an eerie feeling. It would be. And Ron probably knew. I mean, if he didn't know, he was on America's Most Wanted. He's the most oblivious man of all time. But he came to that appointment. Law enforcement flew out there and they arrested him on the spot. Ron went on to serve a 10-month federal prison term in Florida on a weapons charge. While digging around his apartment, they found illegal firearms and they were able to arrest him and put him away. I think because he had already fled the state once, they were really nervous he would do it again. But by serving him this weapons charge, it made him impossible to leave the state. They knew he was locked away in a prison cell and they could continue on their investigation. When law enforcement was searching Ron's house, they also found out that he was an obsessive record keeper. Investigators learned that during the 90s, Ron had received significant cash payments from a woman in Colorado. These payments were usually between $1,800 and $2,000, and they came from Pamela, the scorned ex-wife of Gary. Ron Young didn't just keep extensive financial records. He also recorded dozens of hours of telephone conversations. Here's one example of Ron talking to Pam, and this is what they capture on a cassette tape. Ron said, If I ever found out that you compromised me for your benefit, that would just be really unfortunate for you because there's just plenty of stuff that I could literally dig out of the ground, and you're a fried duck. Well, he doesn't mince words, does he? He has a way with them, let's say that. The investigators also discovered this startling piece of audio tape. Ron said, Well, I'll tell you, you're going to be very serious when you sit in a women's prison for murder. He had all this on tape. Yeah, not incriminating at all, Ron. Not incriminating at all. I mean, in some ways it's smart because it's like, hey, if you're going to take me down, I'm taking down everybody with me. But mm -hmm. ooh, I would not want to think about someone besides the police stumbling across that and knowing that I had that on them. That's a, that's a risky move, Ron. Right, but like you said, it was smart on Ron's behalf because... If she was ever threatening anything, he can be like, I have these recordings. I have all this documentation. One thing that Ron would say on these recordings, he would say things like, you got your two, I want my four. And even though it was a bit unclear what he was referring oh, the million. to, the $2 million that she got from Gary's life insurance policy. And what's the four stand for? After they added all the money on the spreadsheet, it came out to around $440,000 that Pam had paid him. Oh, so she paid this man about half a million to get 1.5 in return, basically? A lot, yeah. During their digging, they also discovered that Ron had searched how to make a pipe bomb. Oh, what an idiot. Right. Back in the day, the internet was not big, but Ron was one of those guys who knew how to use it. They continued to look for clues to try and connect, solidly, Ron and Pam to Gary's murder. After serving 10 months, Rob was then extradited back to Aspen to face these fraud and embezzlement charges. In Aspen, he was taken into custody at the Pitkin County Jail, where he stayed for two months until December. He was facing four felonies in connection with allegedly forging checks from businesses where he worked as a consultant. His former bosses contend that he forged signatures 
and secretly wrote checks. However, he was released after the judge dismissed the felony charges against him, saying the prosecutor's case was based on hearsay and he was free to go. Well, that's a lucky break for good old Ron. So he already served all the charges that he had going for him for having weapons on him, I'm guessing because of mm-hmm. his past. He wasn't supposed to have weapons. Exactly. And they were illegal. Oh, So like gotcha. anything that he had, they were going to use it against right. him. Right. So now he has no time left for they can keep him under their watch. Nope. But while Ron was serving time and dealing with these other charges, it was all coming together for investigators when an obscure police report from 1996 turned up. Keep in mind, that was the same year that Gary Triano was murdered. Back then, a rented van was found abandoned in Southern California. No one knew it at the time, but that van would contain some really important circumstantial evidence. The van was rented by Ron Young. At the time of this police report for this abandoned van, law enforcement took notes of what was in the van. Do you want to know what was in this van? Oh, God. Probably a blue bag, some pipes. <laughs> I don't know what's in a pipe. I don't know what's used to make a pipe bomb. That's not an activity or a hobby that I'm interested in. So I would imagine things that you make a pipe bomb with. Pretty close, but even more damning evidence. They found a note that lists the people that are closely associated with Gary Triano, a map of Tucson, certain pages of Gary Triano's divorce settlement papers, a sawed-off shotgun with a note that said, sawed-off shotgun. I'm sorry. Not very I, don't, bright. I don't mean to laugh, but you said this man is keeping good records. This is a lesson that sometimes when you forget to write things down, it might be a good thing. Who writes sawed-off shotgun? On a sawed-off shotgun. <laughs> they found more weapons, and they also found a receipt for a hotel in Tucson where he stayed for 18 days around the time of Gary's murder under the name of Philip Desmond. You would think that if they could attach this alias to him, he was clearly in the area. They already know he's gotten half a million dollars almost from Pamela, and... He has all of his notes. It's ding ding, wouldn't you think? Right. The next step would be to arrest Pam and Ron. Investigators are sure they have a rock solid case. They take their findings to the Pima County's attorney office, but that attorney's office declined their request to prosecute the two. They're like, nope, put your findings together, make it more crystal clear, then you can arrest him, and then you can also arrest Pam. So that's exactly what happens. They regroup, they like, focus all their findings, they kind of reword everything, they pitch it again, but once again, the county's attorney office said there still is not enough evidence and they will not prosecute the two. After this heartbreaking news, Gary Triana's family filed a lawsuit and that kind of got things moving again. They were finally given the green light to arrest Ron and investigators are then heading out to arrest Pam. So Gary's family filed a civil lawsuit against Pam and Ron. I don't really know It was very brief about this family lawsuit. All I know is that it got the attorney's office to say, okay, you can at least arrest them. We can take them to trial. Well, it makes sense if it was a wrongful death suit or something along those lines. You're right. So Pam is no longer in the country. She had caught wind of her pending arrest, and she took her two kids and fled out of the country. America's Most Wanted, once again, comes into play. They ran a segment on Gary's death and mentioned Pam's potential involvement. Investigators received a call from a guy in Europe who claims that he went to college with Pam's daughter and had seen Pam and even enjoyed lunch with her. He was able to give details about Pam's life, what kind of car she drove, and even who she was dating. 
So this is happening in Switzerland, the guy said. He's from Europe. He's like, I went to school in Switzerland with her daughter. But what do we know about Switzerland? There's no extradition. You're smart at this, Elise. You know way more than I do. They play neutral and they don't like the death penalty. So they actually refused to extradite Pam back to the U.S. because this was going to be a potential death penalty case. And they do not agree with that. And the alternative was we'll just let her chill here, a murderer. I mean, I don't know much about foreign policies, but that doesn't make a lot of sense. They take the whole innocent until proven guilty very seriously there. They heard the U.S. wants this woman. They're going to bring her back there. If she gets the death penalty, the the blood is on our hands, kind of like that. So U.S. officials promised that they will remove the death penalty from the table. But once again, Pam found out about this and she fled. After a full year being on the run, she was discovered in Vienna, Austria, and she was finally arrested and brought back to the U.S. Ron's trial was first, and he was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to a life sentence. Pam was deemed mentally unfit to stand trial, but after two years of treatment at the jail, she was deemed fit. I do want to point this out because this is something I learned recently when I was looking into another case, and I don't Let's say you're up for a murder charge and you're saying that you were incompetent at the time of the murder, pleading insanity, basically, that it's not a get out of jail free card in most states. It's you actually have to go to a facility, get treatment until they can deem you competent to stand trial. And then the whole trial starts over. It's not like you're just a get out of free thing. Now, if you truly are not mentally well, you might spend the rest of your life there. But you, your next stop is not like from that place to home. You have to then start your trial from the beginning when they deem you competent. And I had no idea. I thought that that's why people would plead insane so that they were like, oh, if, the, if I get that, then I just go home and get some counseling. You are blowing my mind today with your true crime knowledge because I had no idea about that either. I'm a real active Googler. <laughs> I don't know if it's the same for every state, but it sounds like it was for wherever they were in Colorado. Yeah, definitely is that case for Colorado because after two long years of treatment, she was able to stand trial. She went to trial, of course, claiming her innocence, and her defense attorneys have an interesting theory. They are determined to prove that it was a mob hit and that Pam and Rom were being framed. Oh, good grief. I'm not an investigator, and I was like, this does not sound like a mob hit. No, I totally agree. After seven weeks of being at trial, the jury came to a conclusion. Pam was convicted of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Well, thank God. I was going to suspect that they were going to let her go because that's sometimes where my faith in the judicial Mm -hmm. system goes. To this day, Pam is serving her life sentence at the Arizona State Prison, but she is still claiming she's innocent. I totally understand. Of course, she's going to say that, but she is convinced that she's been framed. She was quoted as saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, three times in court after being convicted. So this is not to throw a curveball, but I got to tell you one more theory, and it does involve the mob. Remember that doctor from the beginning of the story, Dr. D? Yes. He mentioned that Gary was on a kill list, and he is absolutely sure that Gary Triana was murdered by a guy named Neil McNeese. This part is Mm -hmm. not making sense to me. You're telling me this doctor is just chilling, next patient walks in, and he's like, yeah, I have this hit list of the people I'm supposed to kill. Like, how did he see this hit list? 
Dr. D was a physician, but he was also involved in Gary's business dealings. He was a really close friend to Gary. Okay, okay. That makes more sense. But to your point, he actually was not alone in this theory. The Pima County investigator also agrees that Neil McNeese is suspect number one. So you have two people, one with an incredible background. He's an investigator. One with really close ties to Gary. They're both convinced that Pam and Ron did not do it. Let's talk about Neil for a second. Neil McNeese was a rich kid who'd inherited millions of dollars from his family's uranium mining fortune. During an interview with CBS News, this Pima County investigator said the following. I'll tell you what I think happened. I think Gary really burned someone really good and somebody was really upset with him and they were going to kill him. He then pointed to a photo of Neil McNeese and he said, the man right here is the one who orchestrated this. Dr. D now wants to talk about this beef between Neil and Gary, and he said it was over a huge diamond ring. Supposedly, there was this gorgeous diamond wedding ring that was worth a quarter of a million dollars. Gary needed cash, and he offered up his wife's ring to Neil as collateral for a loan. Take from one person to pay the debt you owe to another. Exactly. But there was a problem here. The diamond was a fake. And when Neil McNeese realized it, all hell broke loose. Dr. D, who was a physician for Neil, said that he went absolutely crazy. And he started to tell Dr. D, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And he said, when I kill Gary Triano, it will be spectacular. The whole world will know that I killed him. Ominous, right? Mm, That isn't casual conversation. I think we've all said in the heat of the moment, at some point in our lives, we've all been mad and been like, oh, I could just kill you. For sure. And you don't actually mean it. Let's just play devil's advocate. If Mm -hmm. Pam didn't do this, then why is she paying Ron all this money and all those audio tapes that they have? That doesn't make sense unless all three of them are involved. Uh, Here's my theory. I think that Neil McNeese was pissed and he was going to kill Gary, but Pam and Ron beat him to it. I think that's what happened. I don't discount the doctor's recollection. I don't discount the investigator's thought on it. But there is so much evidence with Pam and Ron. I just think they beat him to it. That is the case of Gary Triano. I hope that the right people are in jail. I hope that his family has a little bit of peace knowing that justice was served. But It's an interesting case for sure. Yeah, and it took a long road to get there. Mm -hmm. Lots of twists and turns, lots of different people, and a whole lot of money. I have an idea. I really want to hear what the Scary Squad wants to listen to. I'm torn between doing two different episodes. One is going to be deaths on cruise ship. Think about people who fall over, supposedly, or just go missing after landing on these islands. Or realtors and specifically realtors who have been murdered showing houses think about jennifer buziak or the omaha realtor who was sadly murdered a few years ago but i really want to know what you guys want to hear so head over to our instagram a case of the sunday scaries and we'll have a poll up for 24 hours and you guys can pick our next episode wow annie that was a heck of a case i (laughs) i definitely Went down some wrong paths trying to guess. You were really close on a lot, though. It was actually impressive. I still like to play armchair detective, especially when I don't know the case. 
But I appreciate you taking over this week. Allow me a little vocal rest, even though I didn't shut up because <laughs> this case was so interesting. <laughs> so like Annie said, you guys, please vote for her next episode. As always, we will be back next Sunday or maybe a little bit sooner. But until then. <laughs>